Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Speak Sustainable Live. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, Japan, and today I get the pleasure of catching up with the amazing Winifred Bird, talking again about her book, which everybody should read,、uh, Eating Wild Japan, talking about food foraging. And we're going to continue the conversation that we started a year ago. I'm so excited to have you again. Thank you so much, Winifred. Yeah, thank you for having me back. It's great to connect again. And、uh, of course, we have time differences. You're in the US now.、Uh, you said you just moved to a new rural island community in Washington Island. Have you been able、yeah. to find any local foods to forage there? Yes, of course, everywhere. <laughs> I mean, the, the、uh, wild edible plants are everywhere, but this is, yeah, this is a great place for foraging. It's、uh, Washington Island, is、um, an island in、uh, Lake Michigan off of the tip of the Door Peninsula in、um, Wisconsin. So it's the 45th parallel. So that's like, About the same as the far northern tip of Hokkaido. So it's a, like a very northern climate. It's like a little bit different than I'm used to,、um, having grown up in California and <laughs> lived in Japan and all over the place. But、um, yeah, so there's like all the familiar kind of、um, weedy, weedy、um, plants that you find all over the world, including in Japan, like、um, dandelions and.、Um, Let's see, what are some other ones?、I've, I have a list here because I was trying to rack my brain. What are, what are all of them?、Um, you said you could you find have... some fiddle, fiddleback, or fiddle? Fiddleheads, yeah. Fiddleheads. So, fiddleheads, right, can refer to like the different kinds of ferns.、Um, the shoots that come up, they're kind of curled like the end of a violin. So, we do have、um, warabi. Which、um, I write about in one of the chapters in the book.、Um, they're called bracken. And, oh, there's a picture. Yeah. <laughs> they're called bracken in English.、Um, and they, as I mentioned in the book, they pretty much grow everywhere、uh, around the entire world.、Uh, they, they can survive in like every single climate, basically.、Um, and they grow here. They're pretty scrawny here,、um, which is interesting. The soil here tends, on this island tends to be pretty thin and poor. Sometimes sandy.、Um, so, one place where I found them growing like abundantly is a very sandy, it's called almost like a, like a sand pit. Like, we take the kids there to like a giant sandbox. It's like a natural、um, sand area. <laughs> and it has a lot of warabi growing there. And I picked some this spring, and they're, they're very thin and not very juicy. And,、um, you know, so it's, it was interesting. It's kind of like this familiar plant, but yet different. And,、um, You know, not as appealing as maybe in,、um, you know, Iwate Prefecture in Northern、yeah. Japan. But I actually I heard that in one of your interviews that you did since we had the chance to talk last March. I think it was with、uh, the group for translators, Sweat, and one of the Japanese Americans in the audience. Was saying she's lived in America for many years. Sometimes she misses Sansai. She misses the, the、uh, foraged plants and、uh, she finds them in America, but she talks about how different they taste. And this is something that you、uh, said, even in Japan, in different parts of Japan, the wild foraged foods can often taste really different, right? 
Yeah, it varies hugely, like from location to location. Like we moved here to Wisconsin from Illinois, and which is only one state away. And plants that we would, I would forage in Illinois, and that would be wonderful. I'll find them growing here, like say Juneberries and mulberries. Mulberries are a plant that grows all over Japan because the silkworms used to be raised on mulberry leaves. So now they're all over the place. And anyway, you can eat the berries. And um, we just used to love going mulberry picking in Illinois. And so we came up here and like, we learned that it's a further north, the climate is more of a northern climate and they just don't, like there's some trees, but they just don't really get many berries. And it's just not a staple forage food like it was down there. But on the other hand, we have like tons of maple trees and maple syrup making is a, a really important part of the culture here. Um, it was important part of the native culture before European settlers came in and it continues to be an important um, part of the diet for the people who live here now, um, as well as uh, plants like ramps, which are very similar to gyojin and niku. Uh, they're, sometimes they're called wild leeks. They're very abundant here. Um, so it's interesting when you move to a new place, like I find I'm attached to certain plants from where I, the place where I came from and I have to learn, relearn like, okay, I'm not going to be able to eat those anymore, but you have to shift to what is locally abundant and kind of like almost it's almost like you're becoming a part of the new um, environment and ecosystem that you are moving into and adapting your own diet and your own like kind of almost like tastes and preferences to that place. So it's a, yeah, it's an interesting process. Yeah. Well, I have to say that since we talked last year, your book and the topics from your book and our conversation have been coming back to me over and over again uh, when I talk to different guests, when I travel to different places. I'm always making connections with what you have introduced in your book, and I just love it. So um, you talk about so many varied subjects, uh, but I love this idea that, that you said in one of the interviews recently, that whenever you wander, you look at a landscape and think, what can I eat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and right. And when I move, I mean, I've moved so many times in my life. A big part of that moving process is right. Like looking around and saying, learning the plants, um, learning, oh, okay, I recognize these ones. I don't recognize these ones. Talking to people about the plants here and what do they use. Um, so for me, that's like a really important part of becoming comfortable in a new place and feeling like I'm part of it. And it, it's a long process, you know, it's uh, kind of happens over the seasons. And I, you know, like I moved here last summer and I'm still learning okay, what are the seasons here? How do the plants kind of, you know, what are their cycles over the year? Um, so I think, I'm sure it will take years, <laughs> I'm sure, to really learn that. Uh, one thing that has come up over and over uh, in our talk and then in many of your other talks, you often bring up uh, this fascination that you've developed over your years of research between how humans and nature interplay how uh, because of foraging, the forests have been created around areas where people live in a certain way. Certain trees have been favored. Uh, certain plants have been favored. 
Um, and even though we don't have food foraging culture so deeply, even in Japan, um, that's still a lasting legacy of this food foraging history in Japan and around the world, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so it's interesting, you know, if you come into a rural area, say from the city, not knowing anything about its history, um, you might assume that you're looking at a quote unquote wild forest or a wilderness. Um, say, you, say you're in Japan and you're just outside a village and you see a, a beautiful little um, deciduous forest um, with, you know, some flowers growing on the, under the trees and you think, oh, what a beautiful piece of wilderness. Well, the fact is that that is probably a remnant of Satoyama um, which is the village woodland that has been tended and created, kind of like co-created with nature and humans over really centuries and kind of shaped um, to have more plants that are useful for humans, uh, but also still be a kind of a wild uh, place that is really abundant in um, plants and animals and insects um, as well. So, right, the same is true in the United States. Only now are um, ecologists and historians learning that what Europeans came in and viewed as an unbroken wilderness was in fact very much um, shaped by the humans who had been there for thousands of years, um, say burning grasslands to keep them open so that they could harvest wild grains and so that there would be, um, you know, abundant birds, you know, shaping it in a certain way that say deer and birds um, like and will multiply and so they have something to hunt. So I think all over the world you find these, they're often called in J Japanese like semi-natural um, landscapes like Satoyama, the equivalent of Satoyama. Um, and, and right, I think it's important to recognize that and to recognize that people can be part of the landscape and in a positive way, not necessarily that human influence doesn't necessarily mean, have to mean a decline in abundance or a decline in biodiversity. It can be a positive relationship that is sustained over hundreds or even thousands of years. Yeah. Wow, it's so interesting. And so it's so key to also a lot of the work that I do in tourism. And I see uh, Paul has mentioned here, uh, he recently dipped into your book when he was investigating Uesugi Yozan's Katemono in Yonezawa as part of uh -huh. his uh, tourism consulting. So interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, that came up in um, the chapter let's see it was the chapter set in iwate about warabi and the use of the bracken rhizomes during famines and the katemono book is kind of like this historic um book about plant edible wild plants specifically that can be used during famine times um you know uh, to get people through the times when agriculture is not producing um so that's great to hear that yeah, 
really interesting and that was uh part of part of the things that when i was refreshing and listening to what we talked about last year and then reading the book again and part of the thing that i really picked up on this time is the fleeting nature of a lot of the sansai that you talk about um mm -hmm. there's a certain calendar uh different from the western calendar there's 72 weeks it's separated into and it's like an asian uh adapted from china to japan and it's done weekly and there's certain weeks that say now is the time when the bamboo shoots are shooting up or the peach blossoms are coming out and it really made me question is this changing like this specific week by week is this changing because of climate change it must be right yeah oh yeah and um gosh i wish i could remember when i was first in japan uh, i did a story one of the first journalism stories i did about uh, a ministry of environment project to um kind of um it that project maybe got its inspiration from those very detailed seasonal calendars and it was like a citizen science project to have people track these um, very subtle seasonal um, changes and see if try to try to see if they were changing um, because of climate change. And they are. I mean, so it's it's actually really valuable to have those old um, seasonal um, almanacs and records. And um, I remember also hearing that some of like these um, seasonal diaries kept by like country um, gentlewoman in England are now becoming references for comparing how are the seasons changing um, because of climate change. You know, the sad thing is that um, some of the, it's, it's like a very ants and like some of the pieces don't fit together anymore. So maybe a certain insect depends on a certain blossom or a certain plant being there in this place at this time and now it's the timing is off and there's not enough to eat so because it's changing so quickly not all the plants and animals can adapt fast enough to make everything work so you have some of these really sad kind of stories going on wow yeah i mean but it's it's like you said it's an important reference tool um, to really see how climate change is changing. Uh, we hear about farmers having to update uh, when they plant uh, now, earlier in the season, later in the season, uh, in some ways good because they have longer growing season and in other areas of Japan and the world, much shorter growing season. So it's really yeah. area by area is affected so differently. Now, yeah. connected to this is even though it's fleeting, um, you were saying, of course, there's many different parts of the same wild plant, which can be harvested at different times for different purposes. And the whole practice of foraging for wild plants means that the people's diet is more diverse. And I thought that was really interesting. And they have to have a deeper knowledge of a bigger area, which also should be diverse, right? Yeah, exactly. Because in in a, a culture or a diet that is um, based on foraging, the security, the food security comes from that diversity. 
because you don't have a huge amount of any one thing that you can harvest all at one time and just put away. You depend on little bits from many different plants coming, um, getting ready to harvest all throughout the year and um, not just many different plants, but many different types of habitats. So, you know, um, your swampy area is going to have different kinds of plants than your drier edges and your um, your forest versus your edge of the forest versus your open meadow. Those are all going to offer um, more different kinds of plants and more food security because um, not only you can can you have a succession of foods over the seasons, but you're also able um, if if one of them fails, you know you have backup, you have multiple backups. Um, so right, I think there is a connection between um, how you eat, whether how dependent you are on agriculture versus foraging and how much you um, value in a very real and kind of immediate sense, you value that diversity in the landscape and in, in the plants. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's not it's not just kind of like an abstract valuing. It's like it's a very much, you know, when it's part of your food and part of your diet, um, you know, even today, even if it's just a just a hobby or just um just one part of your diet, you really like feel it in a more direct way than if it's just kind of this abstract thing like, oh, we know diversity is supposed to be important. Um, at least for me, it feels more immediate when I have it as part of my diet and my lifestyle, kind of. Yeah. Uh, one of one of the aspects of diversity, last time, uh, one of the stories that I often tell other people from our conversation was your 10-course meal in Kyoto with the bamboo. Um, and that's just incredible that you have bamboo mousse, bamboo sashimi, bamboo everything, <laughs> right? Amazing. Um, but the fact that you also visited Akita and you mm -hmm. went with a farmer and he showed you at 5 a.m., uh, this beautiful area that he found a special kind of bamboo and he roasted it on a little barbecue uh, and you guys had an amazing breakfast together. I love that story. Yeah, that was probably like one of the best meals. It was like one of the simplest, you know, it was just that freshly picked princess bamboo or nemagari dake. Um, yeah, and there's a picture of him picking it in the forest that morning. Um, right, so we got up at like 4.30 or something, which is the time he said he usually goes out to the forest before work and before it starts to get hot. Um, and it's, you know, it's dawn and it's just beautiful to be out in the forest at that time and to, to be picking these fresh bamboo shoots. And they're very slender and kind of delicate. Um, and then we brought them back to the guest house where I was staying and he made a little charcoal fire in the irori and um, just roasted them there kind of in their, their those kind of papery sheaths that they have around them right over the charcoal and um, just ate them with a little bit of salt sitting around the irori and it was just like um yeah, some meals, it's like, it's delicious, but it's also so much more about the whole experience um, and just feeling a part to be a part of that place and a 
part of that little community, even if it's a kind of a temporary community. <laughs> um, but, you know, eating, eating together around the fire, it's just a very like elemental thing. Um, and it, yeah, it made the food taste pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, in one of your recent interviews, you were talking about uh, this area, like so many areas of Japan, is having a declining population, aging population. There's a lot of people who used to know the food foraging culture, which is now decreasing. There's less people aware of the food foraging uh opportunities around the area as well as the history and culture right yeah yeah i mean on the one hand i think um there's a resurgence of interest in wild foods it's sansai in japan and foraging in the united states certainly it's um kind of a hip um a lot of young people are interested in it are learning about it um but I think that definitely the number of people who have that real deep knowledge that comes from it not just being a hobby or an interest, but it being a real part of their lives. And people who live in these, say in Japan, live in these mountain villages and have been forging their whole lives. And not only them, but it goes back generation upon generation of knowledge, very specific to one local place, what grows where, when is it ready? How much can we take without depleting the resource? How do we prepare it? What are the local ways of preparing these foods? These very um, specific kinds of knowledge um, just are disappearing in a lot of places. And we're preserving like kind of pieces of that and kind of general a general knowledge about the plants, you know, there's plenty of books, there's plenty of internet resources, you know, you can find the basics, you can find all the general knowledge, but you can't, what we're losing is that very place-based specific knowledge and experience and culture, the culture of just having it as part of your life on a daily basis. Um, and yeah, it's it's sad and it, it's part of a much, much broader changes that are happening in society. So in order to fix it, you know, you can kind of say, yeah, let's learn about Sansai. Let's have city people come out to visit the country for a few days. Well, that's good, but it gets at the issue on a, on a surface level. I think that um, you need, you need to engage more with the people there. Uh, that add it maybe to part of their daily lifestyle more than just an occasional visit. Um, but that's that is some way that you could use tourism. So if you have a local guest house, uh, the local guest house staff uh, become aware of Sansai, they're more aware of where it is and educated to do tours. They might incorporate it in a part of their lives if they use it as a part of the tourism experience, right? So there's that's another wrinkle that that has possibilities, I think. Right, and also it, it provides a source of income that allows people to stay in some of these more remote places, which is really important. Just a way to like lots of people want to be there if they can, if they yeah. can find a way to make it work. So. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's just step back a little bit and talk about where you were. So you were in Matsumoto in Nagano, is that right? Yeah, and that's where I was living um, at, in the 
last few years when I was I was in Japan. Yeah. And I, I saw this on one of your slideshows. So you were actually growing organic rice. Uh, you had ducks in your rice field. Uh, so yeah. that's that's a good way to know it's organic when you see the ducks. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. And a, quite a cold old house, but very beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love seeing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was a wonderful experience. I feel lucky to have lived there for a few years. Um, yeah, like you said, having ducks, it's a good way to know it's organic. I remember we would come to um, our field in the beginning of the year um, before the ducks were in, and there would just be all kinds of little insects and frogs and stuff. And then sadly enough, we would put our ducks in and they would just have a bonanza eating little frogs and, and insects, which the insects, you know, we were hoping they would eat the insects to control them. But um, yeah, by by the time they started growing, you know, the ducks started growing, there weren't there weren't too many frogs left in our in our field. I'm I'm sorry to say, but <laughs> it was a great a great way of, of doing but that. Thing. But that kind of connects to uh, your work when you went and you did research with the Ainu uh, communities in Hokkaido. Um, so very, this is how nature is supposed to work. Uh, animals are not supposed to eat everything to eradication. Uh, animals in nature are supposed to know more naturally how to live in balance. And it sounds like you found that with indigenous cultures as well, uh, in Hokkaido with the Ainu, that they had a very different idea about foraging for food and the ways that they prepared the sansai was also different. I found that really interesting. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, to your point of um, using the plants in a way that was sustainable over generations, um, the community I visited in Nibutani, which is where the, a lot of Ainu people live in that uh, part of Hokkaido, and they have a lot of like cultural um, kind of revival activities going on and a real strong, um, uh, yeah, a real strong community. Um, so, right, the woman I, I met with, um, a few uh, Ainu women who have been studying their own food culture and documenting their own food culture, kind of talking to the older people in their community about what, what they would harvest, how they would prepare it. They put together a cookbook of traditional Ainu recipes um, and also oral history stories about um, all the different plants and, and harvesting practices. Um, so, and they told me that um, there were very well-established um, ways of making sure that the resources were not over harvested, for example, um, different families would rotate through using um, different areas for for foraging. So I I would imagine it was kind of like a commons. I'm not sure exactly the arrangement, but I remember them saying that um, right. This, so this family would harvest here this year and here this year. So you always knew that you were going to be harvesting on somebody else's spot and they were going to be harvesting on yours in the future. So, you know, you kind of knew you had to take care of it and they'll take care of it. And you also knew that not everybody was going to the same place to harvest the plants. Cause you know, that can be a problem with over 
harvesting of some of these wild plants, some of them are sensitive to um, over harvesting and some of them are not, but some of them take a long time to regenerate. So now we don't have a very organized system for deciding who goes where and takes what. It's more like a free-for-all, a, a bit more chaotic. So there's a lot more risk of depleting the resources. Whereas back um, when the Ainu people in that area were really depending on those um, wild foods for their livelihood and to survive, um, they had a really well-established way of managing the resources to make sure that they stayed um, sustainable over the long term. Um, uh -oh. That's and that's. Can you see and hear? Okay. I can hear you. You're frozen on my screen. Can you? Uh, see it looks here? okay. It looks okay on my side. Yeah. I hope okay. it gets better. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so that was another thing that uh, you talked about in a great interview you did with Brigitte Jackson Buckley. Uh, you were talking more about the community aspect of it and the the stigma as well, uh, which I had never come across that part in the book or realized. Um, but there were certain foods that the Ainu were foraging and using as a part of their diet. But once they, uh, for example, had to go and integrate into schools uh, with other Japanese kids or into workplaces with other Japanese people, um, they stopped eating it because it had like a garlic um, fragrance or they didn't want mm -hmm. to have that stigma. So that changed their foraging culture. I'd never heard that before, but you can yeah. totally understand how that social pressure would also change foraging culture, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really sad. I mean, that foraging became a foraged food, certain foraged foods became a symbol of like a barbaric society, pre-agriculture and, and um, agricultural society was seen as superior or more advanced. So the foods became associated with that and people wanted to dissociate themselves from them or were, were forced to because, um, you know, that was not valued in the culture that they were forced to become a part of or that assimilate into. Um, so, right, they said they were talking about gyoja ninniku in particular, which I mentioned earlier tonight, um, ramps or is a very similar plant, wild leeks, wild garlic. Um, they have these kind of um, deep green oval leaves that have a really pungent smell to them. Uh, they're delicious, <laughs> but um, especially if you eat them raw, it's like eating a clove of garlic. Uh, so right, people stopped. It, it's a really important food in Hokkaido in northern climates, just like it is here in Wisconsin, um, similar climate. Um, and people stopped eating them because because of that stigma. Um, and now that's changed, thankfully, and it's reversed to the point where people are coming into Nibutani and these areas to harvest, <laughs> to take the traditional Ainu foods because there's this growing interest in it and it's actually becoming a problem. Um, 
that there's some overharvest going on and stuff like that. But um, yeah, yeah, I you you touch on that a few times in the book and in many of your interviews. How what is our human connection to nature? And of course, this is a much bigger issue. Um, many many issues beyond wild foods in the forest and foraging. Um, but the exploitative idea, right? Uh, taking more than you need just because you can from nature, from foods, uh, from animals as well, which is so unnatural. It's not the way nature balances itself. Uh, it's such an important issue yeah. that you you have in your book so many times. Yeah, and it's such a hard question. Like, what is enough? Um how do we recalibrate our sense of what is enough um, now that we've been living so beyond, you know, the carrying capacity of the places that we live in and, and of the entire planet? Um, you know, obviously, it, we can't go on like this if everybody is living in the way that, say, Americans have been living for the past 100 years or 50 years or uh, le our levels of consumption. So we have to kind of readjust, okay, what is enough? How can we only take what we need? Um, yeah, and I think, I, I do feel that one of the things that I reflected on when I was writing the book um, and, and thinking about Sansai in Japanese culture um, was that communities that live, that are very connected to a specific place, um, that have been there for generations and generations, you know, just as a practical matter, learn and learn ways to stay within what that area can provide. Because it, for obvious reasons, if you take too much, you are undermining your own um, ability to live there. So for example, you know, cut down all the trees, uh, you know, there's none left for the, for next year, the year after the after your children's generation. Um, and now we're able to draw on resources from the entire globe. So we have to kind of um, learn that lesson in in other ways. Learn how to to only take enough um, in a in a more kind of abstract or intellectual way. And and it's it's hard. I mean. You know, even having written this book and knowing all this, you know, my own lifestyle is, you know, I still am taking way more than my fair share, I would say. So it's it's a really hard, hard thing. Such a hard issue. And it, it goes to policies now about uh, stopping fishing in certain areas of the waters because they're they're beyond uh, regenerative at this point. Um, and that, mm -hmm. that goes for Sansai, it goes for monoculture, agriculture, it goes for so many things. Um, I am so interested in how you are now working on a Japanese translation of this book. And when I read your book, Winifred, there are so many through your lens as an international person, uh, you're taking in your interviews from Japanese that you did when you were traveling around Japan, taking in these stories and experiences. It goes through your lens as an international person with international experiences and cultures and then writing the book. Now, 
what is happening with the process from that English, which has those lenses, to now yeah. be changed into Japanese? How is the process going? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, so the book is being translated by a, a man named, his pen name is Hayato Uesugi. He's a translator in Japan, quite experienced. Um, he's translated, I don't know, something like 80 books. Um, and he's, so he's translating it for Aki Shobo is the publisher. Um, they do a lot of um, translated nonfiction by some great authors. Um, so, and thankfully they picked up our this book and are, are publishing it. They hired him to translate it. And um, yeah, it's, it bring, it's brought up so many like interesting questions for me, exactly like what you were talking about. Um, I think one of the reasons probably that they were interested, the publisher was interested in translating it and why Japanese readers may be initially drawn to it is because I have a foreign perspective on a very familiar topic, a very familiar part of Japanese culture. You know, everybody knows, there knows what sansai are. You know, very few people in the United States knew or know what it is. So I was taking advantage of that gap in the knowledge in the United States, where in Japan, um, the situation is completely different. Everybody has the basic knowledge. So I guess the question is, well, what what does this foreigner, this American woman see? How does she, maybe she sees something different? Or um, So that's a good thing in terms of selling books, but I guess I feel ambivalent because I feel like part of what I can offer is that foreign or outsider's perspective, but hopefully part of what I can offer is just about my perspective as a human being or an individual that doesn't necessarily have to do with nationality, that has to do with my experiences um, throughout my life that brought me to the point of writing the book. So I'm hoping that it is, once people read it, they will view it as more than just a foreigner's look at Sansai, if you know what I mean. Uh, you've you've mentioned a few times that you are very interested in in Sansai and harvesting and foresting, uh, foraging for foods, but you are most interested in people. So I think your your stories and infer inferences about the people who do foraging those will hopefully come through even in translation with a new perspective um, because it's not it's not a field guide to finding mm -hmm. your wild plants it's much right. more about the communities and the people that have mm -hmm. done this throughout history right yes and at my interest exactly i i'm interested in the people the characters i met but also um, I'm interested in what is the meaning of sansai, of foraging? What does it mean for the culture and for the environment, for the land? Um, so I think some of those questions are, are very universal. Like how does foraging or eating wild plants connect us to a place or connect us to one another 
or connect us to history and the past and our culture. Um, so I think, yes, I'm hoping that some of those themes will also, you know, connect with the Japanese audience. Um, but yeah, interest, it's, it's been interesting. Um, I was, to be honest, I was like terrified. <laughs> Part of me is terrified to have a Japanese translation coming out because, um, yeah, it's going to be read by like, who knows how many like total experts, people who have grown up with this culture and these foods um, and these practices. You know, I don't have the luxury anymore of writing for a novice audience. I'm writing for <laughs> experts um, by virtue of being Japanese and, you know, living in Japan. But I think, I think <laughs> Japanese people are so gracious and so appreciative of international people who have a deep uh, respect and interest in things that they appreciate about their culture. And I think Sansa is one of them. Um, I am sure you will get a lot of new fans who appreciate the fact that you have dove in to this quite difficult and complex subject about Japanese culture and history, right? Well, I hope so. And fortunately, um, the translator, Hayato Uesugi, has put in a whole lot of work beyond translating um, in like fact-checking everything, which I am very grateful for uh, because, right, inevitably there are things that I misread or I wasn't able to do, you know, doing the research in Japanese, I wasn't able to have capture the breadth of resources or, um, you know, you know, I just can't read as much in Japanese as I can in English. So I'm sure I miss things. And thankfully, as he was translating it, he went through and like checked up on everything. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. And I'm also grateful that we had a, um, a really unusually collaborative translation process. Um, working as a translator myself, I know that in many cases, there's no interaction between the author and the translator. And there's just so much potential for misunderstanding, mistranslation, even no matter how careful you try to be, you know, you just can't get inside that person's head 100%. Um, fortunately, he reached out and he sent me lists of questions. Um, you know, I would send him photographs of things or I would send him my sources in Japanese, you know, um, and we had a, a quite a good exchange throughout the process of him translating the book. Um, so I was fortunate in that way as well. That, it that sounds great. That sounds like a really collaborative effort. Does this mean that now you have a professional fact checker that you might have a new edition or a forward to the next edition of the English book as well? Like something updated that he was able to discover that you just couldn't do without an expert fact checker like him? <laughs> that would be I don't fun. know if we're ready for the second edition in no, English. No, no, not yet. I think that we find a larger audience in Japan because there's a built-in interest in the subject. Um, inevitably, in English, it's a bit of a niche topic. Um, but one of the things he found out, um, 
you know, I think he was able in one case, um, you know, when I'm I'm writing about Iwate Prefecture and the history of famines there, and there was um, a local kind of record book that of weather and agricultural and uh, famines and things like that going back hundreds of years that I describe at some length in the book. I don't know if you remember that or not, but um, he, and he, I, I based it on like a secondary, basically account description of that book um, by someone who was involved in putting together a compilation of it. He, on the other hand, said, hey, we need to go to the original, which no way was I going to be able to do because this is like historic you know, Japanese that is not used anymore. And I, that's beyond what I was able to do. He went to that source. So he was able to extract the real, you know, original quotes and stuff. So that's um, one situation where he, I think really was able to add something um, to the translation. That's really interesting. And that was a lot of that was about Warabi, right? Yeah, that was in the chapter about Warabi, and and those records do mention um, its use here and there, but I use them more as kind of, um, oh, you have that picture by Jeanette, that's beautiful, yeah. Beautiful, um, yeah. Um, yeah, she, yeah, she's a, a an artist and a poet in Japan, and I asked her to, to make that painting for me, because Warabi are, are it's kind of such a symbolic and important plant in the book and to me because of that. Um, but anyhow, um, yeah, I used that that record um, as more of kind of like a, just an illustration of how common famine and chronic hunger was in that part of Japan in the past and how important wild foods were in getting people through it. Yeah. to be roots and rhizomes, but also many other wild plants. You you often talk about the horse chestnuts uh, culture mm-hmm. uh, being part of the, the famine or anti-famine uh, strategies, right? And that that is always fascinating. Uh, we, yeah. we have a, a comment from Dan with foraging in Japan. How would you compare it to other countries with edible safety, biodiversity, and people's reaction to it? Great question, Dan. Ah, that's a huge question. Um, (laughs) I can speak a little bit to the United States, um, which is where I live and where I'm from. Um, The great thing about Japan, Sansai in Japan, is that I feel like it's very much a living part of the culture with an unbroken connection to the past. So, you know, these traditions of using plants in certain places go back generations and there are still people doing it. Um, And it hasn't, that thread has not been broken. It doesn't have to be recreated or it just has to be carried on, you know? Whereas in the United States, in a lot of places, partly because of the history, the colonial history we have, where the original inhabitants of a lot of places were uprooted and removed or killed and um, new people came in, you know, settlers, pioneers came in who were coming from a European culture or different, you know, 
African cultures, different parts of the world, um, having to acclimate and create new relationships with plants and oftentimes having more agriculture, agriculture-based societies. So uh, wild plants were less important or less valued. It's much of like a more, we have, I feel like we have much more of a broken relationship with wild edible plants here. And many people are working really hard to repair it and reconnect. Um, and a lot of uh, native um, peoples and native communities have maintained their um, their connections over time, but unfortunately they are a minority in terms of our population. And a lot of people don't know, even know that those, those relationships exist or existed. So um, I would say that Japan is very fortunate in that way and should value that that kind of living culture before it before it is lost. That's a good answer. Um, I was just reading today about how the government in Brazil, uh, and this is like the opposite of uh, protecting and appreciating foraging culture, your local plants and biodiversity assets, uh, going the other extreme and going back on things that we kind of have learned from and we're going the other direction again, like you said, in America, we've learned that monocultures uh, raising all the trees and all the forests and uh, just doing uh, cattle raising or monocultures is not a good idea. Uh, in Brazil, it seems like they're still going in that direction, unfortunately, which affects us all. Um, but I'm so glad to hear that you're you're seeing even on the grassroots level that rising awareness that people are starting to appreciate it. And I do see that in Japan too. Um, there is more awareness of the importance of natural farming, of even uh, putting trees and plants together to raise crops. Um, so kind of moving away from the hugely damaging uh, things that we've been doing too much of in the last 20 years or 50 years. Um, oh, yeah. I really hope we're we're going in the right direction. <laughs> I mean, yes, I think it's happening on the fringes and there's a lot to be hopeful about in Japan and the United States. And there's a lot to be still really concerned about because still the vast majority of the resources in our country are growing towards, you know, destructive agricultural practices and land use practices. And the, the trend really hasn't reversed. But at the same time, like you said, there are like signs of, of um change. It, it's interesting. Uh, in recent weeks, I noticed that um, a couple of uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's books have been like on the top bestseller lists um, in the United States. And I remember I mentioned her last time we talked. She's a wonderful um, author, a native woman. She's, I believe she's Potawatomi um, uh, tribe and um, she is also a biologist. She studies moss and plants, and she's written a couple of great books about um, kind of blending um, science and kind of cultural other ways of relating to plants. One's called Gathering Moss and one's called Braiding Sweetgrass. Anyway, I'm just so surprised that these are these books now um, about kind of um, reciprocal, how to create reciprocal relationships with plants. 
based on um, kind of a different way of in, uh, relating to the natural world. She draws on her native background and culture and kind of shares that with a broader audience. I'm just so happy and surprised that these books are now topping the bestseller list. And I'm thinking, wow, something, maybe something is changing um, if that is happening. Oh, I really hope so. Um, I, I, on many levels, people say during coronavirus, they're starting to be more aware of their impact on the environment and how important uh, it is to take care of our environment. I really hope that's true as we kind of get back to normal more, I don't know, since we have the vaccine, I hope people remember that feeling, uh, but we're still having like supply chain issues. And I think that that is another reminder that we need to have local resources of our most important things to survive. And that is food. Um, so I would hope that people start looking around where they live and think, if all the imports stop, how long can we survive? And maybe we should learn a little bit more about how to protect these things that we need for survival, right? Yeah, I agree with you. And I also think, I mean, that's one reason why a local food economy is important, um, using right both agricultural and forage foods. And another reason that I've thought about a lot is that I think our human capacity for caring and for knowing and understanding has limits and we have to recognize that and match the way we are consuming and what the areas that we're impacting with that scope of caring. For example, it's very easy to care about environmental harm happening in your own community. It's quite hard in a sustained way to care about environmental harm happening in a random community in Mongolia or Brazil or wherever it is. So it, I, and I think that's a big problem with the way our food system and our supply chains now are set up is that we're having a much greater impact than we're capable of understanding or really truly caring about. So I think that refocusing on a local, um, a local food system, it kind of reigns in, reigns that in a little bit so that um, we're, our impacts are more in scale with what we can handle, um, what we can actually take care of. I agree. Um, yeah, I think Japan is at 60% uh, dependent on imports for food. Um, as, as long as we can spread that awareness, uh, I don't think a lot of people know that. I, I grew up in Hawaii where we're 90% oh, wow. dependent yeah. on imports of food. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we need to at least know the situation where we live and uh, hopefully make better decisions because of it, because it affects us. Like you said, um, it's much easier to care about what's happening in your, your backyard, right? Right, right. And to be responsible, to live in a more responsible way. Um, yeah, and I think foraging is a good way to start connecting with that, that, um, you know, just, it doesn't have to be your entire diet. It's not going to be. 
but even just um, foraging, learning how to forage some some wild plants here and there now and then um, really will start to connect people, or it has at least for me, um, more deeply with the place that they live, with the seasons in the place that they live. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't have to be hard. It can, it can be like quite enjoyable and simple is to start out with a couple plants that, that um, you know, appeal to you and start incorporating them into your, your diet and your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this in your book about how uh, you saw a development of the landscape because of the kinds of foods that uh, people needed. So, for example, the horse chestnuts, you saw more of the horse chestnuts around different areas of Japan because that was a, a very popular uh, survival food, that kind of thing. Do you do you think people will start to do that more, like planting bamboo with the idea of harvesting it? So it's kind of like intentional sansai. Did you come across that in in your book at all in modern times? Um, let's see. Well, it's hard to say, but I can say that the concept of like tending the wild um which i should attribute to somebody um sam thayer talks about um he's a he's a great author of of wild food books here and actually here in wisconsin um talks about right now what can we do right now we can start whatever little bit of land you own or you have access to um start selectively kind of just gently nudging it towards um, you know, a kind of landscape that would be productive and beneficial for you as well as for the wildlife. So for example, you know, if you see an elderberry plant, you know, clear, and an elderberry is a very medicinal, great um, plant to nurture and to have on your land. So if, say, if you see, see one of those start to grow, you just clear the plants around it a little, just give it a little extra help to encourage that in the landscape. Um, so I think, you know, that people are maybe starting to have that idea again of, of how to positively shape the shape um, the land towards these species that are beneficial to people. Yeah, I hear that, you know, um, I went to a Minka summit uh, this uh, year in May, the very first of its kind, where everybody gathered who is interested in taking over these old houses in rural Japan areas. And uh, people often talk about not only repairing the houses, but gardening and tending the forested areas around. And there's a lot of talk about planting fruit trees. Uh, planting trees that bear food or trees or bushes at different times of the year. And this is something that you often talk about, right? The seasonality, the diversity of having access to yeah. the, the foraging foods. It's yeah. very clever, very smart. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another thing, I guess, just to highlight about what I was just saying a second ago is, and it's great to plant trees to make orchards to plant food forests but one thing that sam there points out as well is oftentimes um a plant that is growing in that spot of its own accord that came up there for for some reason will thrive and do much better than 
a plant that you <laughs> plant there randomly, um, you know, that plant chose that place to come up. So if we can also start thinking about how can we find what is useful already in the natural landscape and encourage it beyond just planting things and kind of like transforming the landscape, but rather observing and nurturing what we like that was already there. I think that's a, a, a really valuable perspective to add as well. Yeah, that's really important. Uh, you don't need to throw out the bath, uh, the baby with the <laughs> bathwater, right? Uh, you, you can see what assets you already have and, and just try to nurture that a bit as well. Uh, there was a, a guy in Wakayama, a Singaporean entrepreneur, Li Shanji, who is harvesting tea from 100-year-old tea bushes which he's finding in the forest around his area mm. so that's kind of the same idea right he's starting to yeah. take care of those old uh plants which yeah. are there nobody has even noticed them for a long mm -hmm. time um but you yeah. have to come in with some kind of idea of what to look for and that's yeah. another way that your book can help right <laughs> well as a starting point i think <laughs> i i hope that nobody will use my book to actually identify plants and eat them because it does not contain enough uh, uh information um botanical information to do that but it can give you an idea of what kinds of of plants grow in which areas that are are common that you might be able to then learn more about and go out and um and find for yourself yeah, definitely you want a good uh, field guide, which has very specific information about the plants. Uh, last time we talked to you, we were talking about some very lookalike toxic plants uh, that are not the edible kind. So you really want to make sure you're you're picking what you want to pick and not poisoning yourself and your family, yes. right? Yes, I should <laughs> make my disclaimer. <laughs> plants can kill you. Please be careful when you're out in the woods, you know, don't just pick something and put it in your mouth. You got to know what you're doing. Find yeah. a mentor or at the very least do some really good solid studying up before you you start um, eating things yeah. from the wild. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, luckily, we have Google and we have a lot of apps that help you identify plants these days. Um, get it from a variety of sources. But I love all of your stories about people and community and heritage and history of the forging aspects of Japanese culture. Uh, thank you so much, Winifred. A wonderful conversation. Great to catch up after a year. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back on the show. It's been great to talk. Oh, good. I would love to catch up once the Japanese book comes out. Uh, it would be great to hear how your reaction from your Japanese readers are and what kind of questions they ask. Wouldn't that be exciting? Um, yeah, let's hope for the best. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Thank you so much, Winifred. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, tomorrow, actually, we have another interesting talk, kind of related. Uh, we're talking with Hannah Lewis. She wrote an interesting book called Mini Forest Revolution, using the Miyawaki method to rapidly rewild the world. So she talks about Akira Miyawaki's method, 
Uh, very small spaces can be changed into diverse forests. Um, so it'll be a really interesting conversation with her tomorrow. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Take care. I show my tears to you, I'm stronger I dropped the armor, now I'm bolder